Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. There we go. Am I on now? As we move fast through this gospel, <laughs> turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7, Mark chapter 7. What a, a great gospel it has been, and it is teaching us much about who Christ is, and not only all the things that he is doing, loving, and shepherding the people, but as we will see today, and as we noted before, that there are many critics in the crowd who go after Christ. The title of today's sermon is Being on the Wrong Side of God. Let me read the passage for us that will comprise our study. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. The holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God reads this. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. And it seemed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and, and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. Let us pray. Father, we again thank you for our morning worship. We're reminded of our union in Christ. 
Jesus, we, we rejoice in the fact that once saved, once redeemed, you dwell within the life of the believer. And what a blessing that is in pursuing you, in pursuing truth. As you are well aware, Lord, we, we come to a text that is scathing against those who push back against the heart of the truth, where men rise up in traditions and, and, and say that those things can trump your word and how foolish that is. And Jesus, we, we thank you for your rebuke. For often we can look at that and say, yeah, that was for the Pharisees, but for, for us, maybe not. But Lord, we know that your word is sufficient and it pierces our own souls. And so as we go through the text, may you continue to teach us May the Spirit put his finger upon the things that we, we hold dear to that are extra-biblical, that are traditions, that are man-made. So teach us this morning, Lord, we pray, and ask that you will have the Spirit help your servant. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Purdy, scathing rebuke. It is something that needed to be said, no doubt. Jesus going after these critics. And he, it's, what's interesting to me is that the Pharisees are looking on the outside, and yet Jesus is looking at the heart. And I think you get that. In the midst of Christianity, you know that, that scriptures are all about dealing with your heart. But he says in verse 9 there that they are experts at this. Expertise, being an expert. You and I know that someone who's an expert has crafted a skill that is beyond what anybody else can do. These would be individuals that have honed their craft, have exceeded in their craft. Just to give you an example, I think you would agree with me if that if you were to attend a, a t-ball game or, or go to their local ball field and see a youth or even a high school game and then attend a major league baseball game, you would see a difference in level of skill. Such is the case if you were to ask Bear and Nate to sing. There would be a noticeable difference who has the skill and who doesn't. Experts who've mastered a skill. It's pretty remarkable in finding this, this truth out. I don't know if you realize this, but maybe for some of you, you can have heard about this, but I was pretty amazed in, in recognizing this, this gentleman who had a skill to climb rocks. One sex expert in that field is, is Alex Honnold. I don't know if you've read about him. It was back in June of 2017 that he became the first person who climbed the 3,000-foot sheer face of the wall of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. How many, by the way, have been to Yosemite? You know that rock that you've seen. That structure is massive. Here's the deal. He climbed this 3,000-foot sheer granite face of the wall without ropes in the time of four hours. Pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable. 
I don't know about you, when my wife, my family visited there, I was, I was a little under the weather, but I, I was looking at this and just marveling at the creation. But yet to somebody to climb that without any safety net is pretty remarkable. Or we can have other words for that, right? We flat out crazy, right? <laughs> Putting this into perspective, I was reading an article about his life and and, and why this was such a huge feat. I'm not a rock climber. I'm a rock picker-upper. Um, but just listen to what some of the experts said about his feet. They said, and I quote, that this is, has to be the greatest athletic event of our lifetime. They continued to say that he had to be perfect in his four-hour climb if he had made one simple mistake, he would have fallen to his death. Now, being a baseball player and practicing and, and over and over and trying to perfect a skill, listen, he didn't even have a practice shot at this. Now, did he have skill? He did. Did he have expertise? He, he knew how to navigate because he has climbed much. But that particular wall, only one shot. What's interesting to me, in our passage before us, we find some experts of, of, of the worst kind, however. They are, like I said, and, and look again with your eyes at verse 9, these are men who are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep their traditions. Of all the things you think about that you can imagine the Lord talking to you about, I mean, this would be cutting and straight to the heart. You are experts at setting aside the word of God. I mean, who wants to be that kind of expert, right? Jesus, of course, showed up in this area. We know this to be Tyre and Sidon, according to Matthew. He has just been on the opposite side. We know exactly context-wise what was happening in Mark chapter 6. He fed miraculously 20,000 people by reproducing the fish and the loaves. The people want to make him king, so he sends home the crowd, disperses them after they, their stomachs are full, forces the disciples to get in the boat to go ahead of them. A storm comes up. The disciples are, are rowing, trying just, just to get to the other side. And Jesus walks on water, calms the storm, gets in the boat, and they are in awe. They finally lie on the other side. Excuse me. They were greeted by crowds who wanted to be healed. Word had gone out. Jesus was in the area. And this... We pick up in Mark chapter 7. This is where we're at. This is where we find ourselves. And I think it's important, as I, I prayed and noted at the beginning of our sermon. I mean, I, I've enjoyed these miracles. I've enjoyed the fact of what Christ has done and, and, and just displaying his deity before the people. But sometimes we often forget that there are critics. There are critics who despise Jesus. We already know their agenda. We already seen that in Mark chapter 3 where the whole issue where they are going out to get him. They were wanting to trip him up. They were wanting to accuse him. They were wanting 
him to fade away. Why? Because all the attention has been drawn to him and not them. He seems to garner the, the, the religious authority amongst the people. And so if, when you look at verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Do you realize that Jerusalem was 100 miles away roughly from where Jesus is at? And so you, you can see what's, what's stewing back in Jerusalem as the religious leaders get together and they're trying to say, who is this Jesus guy? All these things are coming back to him, all the things that he's doing, and they are concerned, and so they decide to send a delegation with an agenda, with an agenda to, to trip him up and go after him. And so they take so many days to walk 100 miles, and they finally find Christ. And according to verse 1, it tells us that they gathered around him. It's pretty remarkable in the Greek. It literally has the idea of encompassing him, encaging him. We don't know how many. We know that's plural. But all we do know, this is that Jesus is one, right? And here they are encompassing and surrounding him. Their desire was to see him, see what he's doing, and publicly humiliate him. Why? Again, so that they can be in the place where the people worship them instead of Jesus. This interaction is pretty remarkable, and we see it throughout the Gospel of Mark. You have these theologians, and, and you can look at the Pharisees that way. They, they, were, they were looking. The scribes, remember, they were the, the keeper of the law. They were, they were the lawyers of the day. They were making sure that if they saw something out of line, that they would bring out their stick and they would whack hands. And then you have the Sadducees, which, by the way, you don't see that in this text. But the Sadducees were, were much like your liberals today who, who had a kind of a form of religiosity but, but definitely were missing the mark. And they were all going after Christ. I mean, you think that they would rejoice. You would think that there, there would be a, a, a softening of heart and understanding all that Christ was doing and how profound it was that, that he was showing deity in what he was doing. But yet, like I said, his heart was hardened. Their hearts were hardened because he was a threat. And they badgered him and they interrupted him. And they tried to get to a place where people could finally say and point a finger and, and shake their fist at him. By the way, they do succeed, do they not? At one point, they were going to say what? Crucify, crucify, crucify. Here it is, in the midst of, of his divine power is a scenario, a narrative of opposition. And like I said earlier, if there's anything that we don't want to be an expert in, it is being on the wrong side of God. And so as we go through this, I've only given you uh, two outline points. And a matter of fact, I think you got a blank insert, but let me give you two ways to be on the wrong side of God. And you can write those in. 
And we see this in the Pharisee and the scribes who tried to control Jesus. The first one is this. The first way to be on the wrong side of God is to have a stubborn, a stubborn adherence to standards that are extra biblical or not in the Bible. Holding on to something that is not biblical. Having a stubborn desire to standards that are not in the scriptures. We see this in verses 1 through 5. We call this, of course, legalism. You and I both know that that L word is, a, is kind of a naughty word when it comes to Christianity, right? Legalism. And so we pick this up again. I want you to look at verse 1 again. The Pharisees, some of the scribes, we look at this, gathered around him. They had come from Jerusalem. That verse set the scene. They were trying to, to get at him. They were literally a mob around him. And not only that, we find out that this group of men had evil intentions. Look at verse 2. And had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. You almost get the sense that they are around Jesus. They're around what's going on, and they're looking in, and they're taking notes. And they noticed, we got an aha moment. We got a gotcha moment. This is what we're going to approach him with. They had seen some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed. Now, by the way, just a side note. Um, it's okay to wash your hands, especially before you eat, and especially when you come out of the restroom. That's a good thing to wash your hands. I was uh, up at youth camp so many years ago, and I came across a statistic that over between the ages of 12 to 22, 75% of them or greater don't wash their hands. And so you can imagine what your pastor did who had a whole cabin full of junior hires. I dogged them to the bathroom and made sure they what? Washed their hands. That's a rabbit trail. This is the issue, however, when they noticed that the disciples weren't washing their hands when it came to a meal. This was the issue. You think about it, this is the issue? This is the issue that you're going to discredit Jesus and have the masses stop following him? It's interesting to me. Because Mark gives us a kind of parentheses in your Bibles. You'll see verses 3 and 4 as, as some commentary so that we can understand exactly what is going on here. You look at verse 3, it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. And what he's doing, he's giving us the tradition of men here. Thus observing the tradition of the elders. Verse 4, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and cop copper pots. How many of you have ever heard of the Mishnah or the Talmud? Extra biblical laws for the Jews that they would write and write down what the rabbis said and that they would bring forth in order to be a vessel of holiness? Notice verse 3 says that they were observing tradition of the elders. This was a custom and it was man-made. This was ceremonial, 
It was a ritual placed on the Jews, and it was extra biblical. In other words, it wasn't in the Bible. The Pharisees, the religious leader, had extra biblical traditions. And their idea was this. When, when they came up with the Mishnah and the, and the uh, Talmud, the whole idea of all that is, is so that they could have this holy fence around the center where God's word is at. They want to protect, and so they would add to the law so as to protect the law. For example, and I, I did get a little bit of research into this, and this is, you probably have heard some of these things before. For example, in the effort to protect the Sabbath day, you know, the, the holy day, where you are to rest from your labor. I mean, the Jews had law after law after law to stop you from even getting close to breaking this commandments. Their fear was that if you even started going down that road, you're going to be in great danger and you're going to be in great judgment from God. Listen to what they said. They said, you can't look at a mirror on the Sabbath day. Why? For some of us, it's a good thing that we look in the mirror, right? You can't look at the mirror on a Sabbath day, and the reasoning for this is because if you look in the mirror and see a gray hair... You might be tempted to pull it out and thus perform work on the Sabbath day. Rick, we're in trouble. (laughs) You also couldn't wear false teeth. Why? Because if they fell out of your mouth, you would have to pick them up. And in their eyes, that would be work on the Sabbath day. If that wasn't enough, they even had rules on how you were to spit some saliva on the Sabbath day. The reality is that you could, but where is the issue? If your spit landed on the dirt and you by chance scuffed it with your sandal, the rabbi saw this as work because you were cultivating the soil in hopes to plant a crop. We laugh. Nonsense, is it not? Nonsense. And so here's the issue in Mark 7. This was was about being clean and being, being washed and having your hands clean. And they have a lot of pages addressed to, to cleanliness. This originally rose from the biblical principles and command that was given to the priest in Exodus chapter 30, verse 19. It was a priestly duty in front of the people to wash their hands ceremonially so that they can can show a presence that they're walking into holiness. But here's the deal. It was only for the priests. But if it was good for the priests, it's got to be good for us, right? And so they made laws that every man, every person should wash their hands before a meal. And if not... They put the onus and the power that you were breaking God's law. They were so caught up in their traditions that they missed the heart intent of the truth of the law of God, and that was to get to the heart, right? They were so consumed with the external look of how I look before men instead of how do they look before God. 
And so what you ended up having was, is legalism. You have this, this, this ritual. If we do this and don't do that, then we will have a greater standing and favor with God. And they pitted their traditions against God and his word, yet they missed it. And so doing, they laid burdens upon burdens upon people that was never intended from God himself. Like I say, it was a show for them. It was done and seen publicly to show that they were righteous. And if you didn't do it, everybody would look at that and say that you were what? Unrighteous. I mean, you can see what's going on here. Self-appeasement, selfishness, trying to look better than you are putting lipstick on a pig, knowing the reality that you live in the slop, right? Verse 5, here comes the fight. Here they come. The Pharisees and the scribes, verse 5, asked him, asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And you can just imagine the snarly look and, and, and questioning Jesus, right? We find here under Jesus' rule, by the way, his response is so beautiful. And what we find in the midst of this, that, yes, you are right. I don't, I don't, Jesus didn't, didn't have his disciple wash their hands. It wasn't a command. Why? Because it wasn't necessarily what? Biblical. What we do find Jesus often teaching is that he was going after the heart and what is true and what is right. And Jesus has much to say to them about their heart. And he goes after them. They had a stubborn adherence to their own traditions that it blinded them to the reality of what is true and what is right. By the way, how often do we do that? I mean, we go through a sermon like this, and there's just, it just infiltrates our souls. The word of God puts a mirror up to our soul, and we realize of all the traditions that we think are are, are necessary, yet they fall short in the intent of the law or the intent of truth. And man likes to elevate themselves. How many traditions that we hold on to that are ungodly? Listen, I've taught a lot about that from from this pulpit throughout the years. You think about legalism. Tradition is a servant of the word of God, right? Never does the word of God fall itself under tradition. Tradition serves the word of God. And just because you've done it for 20 years doesn't mean that you have to do it if it's extra biblical, if it's just a man-made tradition. It leads us to our, our second way to be on the wrong side of God. And that is to disregard God's written word. Not only do you have a strong adherence to, to, to keep your, your traditions close to your vest, you have a disregard to ignore what God says. And this is where it gets pretty dicey. And I just love our Lord, how he just pierces their souls. 
and in so doing, he pierces ours. Verse 6, he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. I say that softly. I'm pretty sure he said it sternly. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. He calls them hypocrites. They are someone who talks a good talk, but yet don't practice the walk. I mean, I just love the Christ in the midst of, of this. He knew, understood exactly what they were, were, they were coming to do. He knew their motives. And he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13. You can throw that up on the screen, Cherie. What's interesting to me, this quote that he quotes from is actually out of the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. But this is what Isaiah 29, 13 says. It reads there, Then the Lord said, Because the people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition, Learned by rote. What Isaiah wrote as far as what the Lord said came to bear in Jesus' interaction with these Pharisees and scribes. So they're doing everything externally to look like they are close to God, but their hearts are far from God. And Jesus was telling them that when Isaiah wrote this, he was talking about you. They were talking about the externals. The Pharisees were more concerned about how you approached instead of the heart of worship. They were looking on the outside instead of the inside. I think about this just in, in the midst of study. Such a scary thing that can be. That you can have an external veneer that looks like you're devoted to God. Listen, you can fool your pastor. You can fool your husband or your wife and your children, but you will not fool God. It is possible to talk the right talk and participate in church, but the reality of it is, is it's all for show. No transformation. And Jesus turns the tables on them. Verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. The question is, how does one become a hypocrite? Ignore what God's word says. Just ignore it. Don't even have it a part of your daily pursuit of, of trying to even to understand what God's word says. Or go to a church that doesn't even open up the word of God. Or, or go and, 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 and surround yourself with secular ideas and a Christianity that fits your style. You can find your place where you will have your ears tickled and be far away from God. 
Verse 9, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. What an indictment. You have become an expert of setting aside God's word. Matter of fact, you don't even consider that when the word of God challenges your tradition, you're going to shut down the word of God. But Jesus doesn't just indict them. He gives them a case study. In case they were, and they were, rockheads, and they needed an example of exactly what they were doing and why they were doing, he gives them a case study. Now, a little bit of context. It will be helpful as we go through this. But I want to set this up by saying, in looking at this, you notice the word Corbin. You notice that it was said in parentheses there, that that is to say, given to God. It was like taking your resources and you were going to devote them to to God. And all you had to do was say Corbin, a Hebrew word, saying that it's devoted to God. It could be land, it could be animals, it could be an inheritance. But the point is that it is reserved for God and the rabbis and the temple. And at some point... I think in between the Testaments, you have a corrupt Jewish leadership that takes something that was honorable and corrupted as a loophole for themselves. This is what was happening. People were allowed to designate their possessions that they had and claim them to be Corban or an offering given to God. And upon their death, the rabbis would use that position, of course, for the temple and for themselves. Now, why was this so significant? Well, here's the deal. As a young adult who have your wealth and and as you still have your parents that are still alive, and the scripture calls us to honor our father and mother and, and taking care of them, what the Pharisees and the rabbis said was this, is that, you can get out of that by saying Corbin on the possession so that it's only reserved for God and you don't have to use your resources and follow the commands of God and take care of your parents. This is what they were doing. And not so, and oh, by the way, since you've done this honorable thing, you can continue to use your wealth until you die. You can see what they're doing. They are withholding their their possessions to not even take care of their own. It was a loophole for adult children who had aging parents who had needs. And their thought is that it's going to consume their wealth and they're not going to have anything in the end. So let's just call this Corbin and it will be given to the God. And then that relieves us in a righteous way because we're giving it to God of our responsibility to take care of our parents. The command is to Take care of your parents. And Jesus points that out. Look at verse 10. He says, for Moses said, where did Moses say that? Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and your mother. And in Exodus 21, 17, he goes on and says, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. I mean, he points out the principle. He's driving at their hearts. He understands that maybe even some of these Pharisees and scribes, they knew the scam that was going on. But look at verse 11, and this is so telling. 
Here's the command, verse 10. Honor your father and mother. Take care of them. Verse 11, but you say. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help us is Corban, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. They found the loophole. And what does he say? Verse 13, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Ouch. I mean, Jesus drives a stake into their human traditions, which, by the way, they think is on the same level as God. How often do we justify our actions? How often do we justify our traditions? How often do we justify thinking that I, this, this will make me look righteous, but yet in turn it invalidates other principles and other truth? How often do we do that? Listen, neglecting God's word will lead to ignoring God's word, which ultimately will lead to replacing or removing God's word with your desires and your traditions. How do we combat that? I think it's simple. I mean, this is a simple truth this morning. Not only does it pierce our souls, but it gets to the heart, and it tells us exactly. How do we do that? We read God's word, and we do what? We obey it. That's the simplicity of it. Why do you want to be fighting God and his truth? I don't get it why the world and churches desire to, to say, you know what, God really didn't mean, or, 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 or there's, there, there's something else. Listen, obey. Trust his truth. He is the holy and righteous God who gives you his word that is inspired and is eternal. Don't add anything to it. And don't take anything away from it. Listen, read the scriptures, and then obey. That passage that we read earlier in 1 John chapter 2, how does God know that we love him? By keeping his commandments, by obeying his word. God finds you in, in, in great love for him when you desire to take this and leave it as your authority for your life. That you obey it, that you show action. He understands that you desire. He knows that it's going to get tough. He knows that the word of God is going to be challenged. He knows that we live in a day and age where the world is going to be pressing against us, that this word is going to be hate speech, that this word is going to be <clears throat> a rock thrown back in our faces. But so what? Really, so what? This is the only one that we desire to please, and the word of God is there for us to obey. Don't let your traditions overwhelm you and lead you to violate God's word. You think about when you get on that trail, you start drifting away. And you wonder why, what, how, how did I get so far? You wake up one of these days and you're like, how did I get so far away from God? 
Don't let human traditions master over the word of God. I mean, it's just a heart check. It really is. When we apply it to our own souls, what things are we, are we making equal to the word of God? I mean, I, I have so many examples. And by the way, I mean, your pastor is not void of that sometimes, right? I remember in our younger days, and Sheree and I often have conversations with our kids. They remember the dark ages. That's what they call it. And they call it our legalistic days. And there were certain things, right, Stephanie, of certain things that you could and could not do. And the thought was to try to help these little sinners to be righteous. But they laugh with us, and we, we laugh with them, and we rejoice in the fact of what God has done in our souls in maturing and sanctifying our hearts and adhering to what the Word of God says. great example for you is to, is to go home and, and start talking to your wife or your kids about this. What things do we do that are more human tradition than obeying God's word. And once you identify them, don't put it on the same level as God's word. I get it. There are certain rules within the house, and we often tell our kids this, there are certain rules in our house that must be obeyed because we got eight of us here. And they are extra biblical. And we'll let you know that they are for your blessing and for your parents' sanity that you obey them, right? But teach him that. Teach him the fact of what is rules that we have made and what God's word has said. Here's a little list of hard evaluation. You can boil down legalism as abstracting the heart of God's intention, right? In a simple way, legalism is defined generally as the act of putting your traditions above the word of God. That is at the root of it. And so what the legalist does, he strips the grace away from the obedience and makes it all about duty instead of delight, and they squash what God is doing in their hearts. So, a little checklist. How can you tell if you're a legalist? Here's your checklist. One, if I determine whether God likes me or not based on how well I keep the rules, I am a legalist. I'm a legalist if I tend to pray less when I fear that God is probably mad at me about something. I'm a legalist if I tend to notice bad behavior instead of the heart issue. I'm a legalist when I think about others when I'm sitting under the sermon that they really need to hear it and not me. I'm a legalist if I'm more passionate about rules instead of listening to what God's word says. I think you can add to that list. You can evaluate your own souls. I mean, what a lesson for us to look at as we look at this, this narrative in this passage. 
Jesus showing his divine authority to be able to correct the heart and get to the heart issue at hand. The religious leaders, the scribes who were supposed to be there to bring forth what was supposed to draw them closer to the Lord were, were challenging God himself. And God sets them straight, right? Jesus sets them straight. Two ways to be on the wrong side of God, having a stubborn desire to standards that are not in the Bible, and two, disregarding God's written word. Simple truth to understand. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the narrative and the truth that, that comes our way. We know that you have laws and truth, and it's not that we just go out and now we don't do anything. You have given a structure. You've called us and shown us how to worship. You've told us when the church gathers that we read the words, that we pray, that we sing, and that we study. Those are prescribed But, Father, how we mess it up at times when we describe what we want to do by, by inserting our traditions. Father, I, I pray that you use your word to put your finger, Spirit, you put your finger on those things that we have elevated to the same level of, as the word of God. And as you reveal that to each of us, may you find our repentance to be quick. Father, our heart's desire is to know your word and to follow it. Help us in that endeavor. Help us to, to be people of the book. And when I say the book, there is only one book, the authority, the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God. We thank you for your grace in all this, Father. We, we thank you for revealing our own perceptions and traditions. But we also are grateful for the fact that you correct and you help us in the midst of understanding and what is right and what is true and what is important to you. Our obedience to you is an act of love showing that we love you. Our obedience doesn't earn us anything, but it's a love letter. It's a love token of the soul, of the redeemed heart that says we love you. We thank you, Christ, for all that you have done and continue to do within our souls. We pray that you have your way with it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who has given us life, who has resurrected from the dead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll close in song. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com 
slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.